0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, how boycotts against Russia work and how they don't.
0: That's the
1: voice of Alexei Zimin, a Russian chef based in London, who runs a fashionable restaurant in Soho.
0: It's kind of a little bit hipster places, because it's not just uh, babushka, grandmother with... Until a month ago,
1: Alexei would only ever really post beautifully curated photos of his cooking on his Instagram. But now he's posting anti-war protest songs and rallying his tens of thousands of followers to focus on
0: Ukraine.
1: Until the war, his restaurant Zima, which serves shuba, Borscht, stroganoff, and berry-infused vodkas, was always fully booked.
0: Usually uh, on Friday, for, for example, at Saturday, We we cannot add uh, no one one walk-in in in the restaurant because all the the places are booked.
1: But on the 24th of February, all that changed.
0: We have less bookings.
1: It didn't matter that most of the kitchen staff were Ukrainian or that Zima had pledged to donate 10% of its revenue to the Red Cross. The restaurant faced a flood of cancellations and started getting angry calls. Staff were abused, and Alexei had to hire security on the door. I've never
0: been uh, activist because I'm chef and I'm a little bit of relatively writer, and uh, I thought that you can be good men uh, without taking part in politics. But now I cannot be this, the same man.
1: And it's not just Alexei and Zima. Russian brands and even companies and products that aren't Russian but seem like they might be have been hit by a wave of anti-Russian sentiment that has spilled into something that is unruly and uncomfortable.
2: The war in Ukraine is unfolding day to day and it's really hard to see that anything material is going to change on the ground for people being bombed in Mariupol or Kyiv because of somebody in London deciding that they don't want to drink Russian vodka.
1: The Guardian's Archie Bland has been reporting on Russian boycotts, from the ban of Russian cats in the International Cat Federation to big brands like IKEA and McDonald's closing their branches in Moscow. But what impact do these official and unofficial economic protests have? From The Guardian, I'm Nosheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, in the rush to boycott Russia, who wins and who loses? Archie, almost as soon as Putin invaded Ukraine, governments around the world responded by imposing economic sanctions on Russia. Now, first of all, can you tell me or explain exactly how this works?
2: So economic sanctions have a long history of being part of the armoury of what governments use to take on foreign powers, which they're not happy with, but where they want to fall short of a war. If you look at Cuba, at Syria, at Iran... In all of those examples, we see economic sanctions, we see military sanctions, uh, and we see diplomatic sanctions. And they've all been used in Russia to really powerful effect, whether it's a question of freezing the assets of somebody like Roman Abramovich, whether it's stopping uh, powerful Russian individuals from traveling easily, or whether it's sanctions against Russian banks or the Russian financial system.
1: Let's turn to sanctions now. We know that the US, the UK, the EU have responded to this invasion with sanctions against Russian oligarchs. Well, the latest move by the UK government is to sanction the owner of Chelsea football club, Roman Abramovich. His They're all
2: moves which have contributed to a sense Chelsea that this is probably the most, the most overwhelming yeah. set of sanctions ever taken against a foreign power by the West in coordination.
1: Wow. And that's... That's just where this story starts, though, isn't it, with sanctions and boycotts?
2: Yeah, so alongside sanctions, you have boycotts, and they share some of the traits that you think of with sanctions in that they're a set of measures designed to punish essentially a government which is behaving in a bad way. But they're different because typically, boycotts are less coordinated. And they are, to some extent, less powerful. So whereas sanctions have the power of the state behind them, boycotts will be run by civil society or by companies or even by private individuals. So the boycott of Russia began at the very top of the pyramid of what you might think of as the power that they can have. We had companies like Shell and BP pulling out. Um, of their links to Russian companies. And then you also had huge international brands from Apple to LVMH to Ikea to Uniqlo and many others uh, closing their shops in Moscow and St. Petersburg.
3: Just getting some news in from Apple announcing a series of moves it is taking to cut ties to Russia after the company says that they're deeply concerned about the invasion of Ukraine, pausing all product sales in Russia. Also, Apple says last week we stopped all exports into our sales channel into the country. Just another example of a big Western company making a move. To cut ties and You
2: also had the sure. beginning of a cultural boycott. So we saw uh, movies like the new Batman film or the new Pixar film being withdrawn from distribution in Russia. And then outside of Russia as well, you had a response from uh, outlets like British supermarkets, which decided to drop its Russian products. It became so toxic to be associated with Russia that even British American tobacco decided that it wasn't a brand association it could live with and uh, sold off its Russian company.
1: Wow, so it says something when British American tobacco think your brand is too toxic to work with. Yeah. It was, I mean, as you've, as you've listed all of that, and I look back at those last few weeks, it was so startling to see how fast some brands and businesses moved on this. Can you explain why these companies so quickly arrived at the same decision?
2: Well, I think it's a really interesting example of how much uh, companies' behavior these days is driven by what they think their consumers want or are going to want. So whereas in the past, you might have expected something like this to come up because of massive consumer pressure, in this case, it almost happened the other way around. So we actually saw these companies act for the most part really before substantial pressure on them to do so. And while there were some that came later, There was a real snowball effect. So once companies start to see other big movers like BP or Shell or Apple do it, it gives them cover and confidence that by doing so, they're not going to face a major outlier disadvantage.
1: So that's a giant corporations, either making a political stand or protecting their brand, depending on how generously you see it. How else has this idea taken hold?
2: So after those steps, which I think most people recognised was at least legitimate for those companies to take, even if they questioned how effective they would be, we start to get into much fuzzier territory. And um, you might think that they're not being an Ikea in Moscow is something that will affect some Russians in a meaningful way and affect how maybe they think about how the war is going, you might have a different view about what it means if the world taekwondo governing body uh, strips Vladimir Putin of his honorary black belt.
1: The sports world is responding too, banning the Russian team from soccer's World Cup, even stripping black belt Vladimir Putin of his status as honorary president of the International Judo Foundation.
2: But there's a complicated question about all of these sorts of measures. So we've seen the FIFA video game remove Russian teams. We've seen Netflix halt work on a bunch of Russian-produced dramas, including Anna Karenina. Um, Those kind of measures, you can kind of see a cultural weight and an argument that it does perhaps contribute to a bigger sense that something is wrong. But then you might have another view when it comes to, for example, uh, an orchestra in Wales pulling a Tchaikovsky performance, or Compare the Market uh, pulling its well-known meerkat ads from the news because it was concerned that Russian accents might offend people.
3: I am Alexander, founder of
2: CompareTheMeerkat.com, where we compare meerkats. That's not really a boycott in any meaningful sense. That's more about this sort of sense that grows around boycotts that associations with Russia um, or whatever the target of the boycott might be is bad publicity and uncomfortable. And it's not so clear in those examples that there is a solid moral argument for doing it. It seems more like perhaps it's about branding or about anxiety about the response that you're going to get from people.
1: Huh? So... On the one hand, we're now in the middle of watching this devastating war unfold. And on the other, we're processing the idea that this fictional Russian meerkat that's used to sold car insurance on telly is somehow taking a stand against what's happening. Archie, how did we get here? And does this seem normal to you?
2: It doesn't really feel normal to me when you have the International Feline Association banning Russian cats from its competitions. Uh, So, you know, I think there are definitely examples here where you might raise an eyebrow. But you might also quite reasonably say, look, this is something which these uh, companies or organisations have every right to do. They might not think it's going to affect the course of the war in Ukraine, but they might feel that they still want to express their revulsion of what Vladimir Putin is doing.
1: Archie, what's the historical precedent for all of this? Where does the principle of boycotts come from?
2: So boycotts existed really before there was a name for them. You can go right back to the Boston Tea Party in 1773 and you can view that as a kind of a consumer boycott when um, people living in the American colonies dumped a bunch of tea into Boston Harbour. In the years after that, uh, there was something called the Free Produce Movement, which was a British and American campaign to reject sugar that had been made by slaves. So those are sort of proto-boycotts and they share a lot of the characteristics that we view as being central to what boycotts are today in that they have a desired outcome, but they're also about stating what you believe and about organising around a kind of a political principle and giving people something to stand up
1: for. So where have boycotts been used most effectively in the past?
2: Probably the best known example of a boycott which everybody could get behind was the anti-apartheid boycott of South Africa.
3: Crisis in a South African town. A boycott
2: by black customers is working. Some shopkeepers talk of going out of business. That began in 1959, uh, with the boycott of potatoes produced under slave-like conditions. It went on and developed over the next 20 years plus to become a really widespread boycott of South African produce, of South African furniture, but also refusing South African sports teams access to international events of musicians and other artists refusing to perform in South Africa.
0: We're rockers and rappers, united and strong. We're here to talk about South Africa, we don't like what's going
2: on. There's a complicated question about whether the anti-apartheid boycotts were the cause of the end of apartheid. Most people would say that they weren't, but at the same time, they played a central role in mobilising public opinion around it and in creating the conditions that made the end of apartheid possible.
1: Boycotts don't always provide a neat solution, do they? I mean, in the case of Israel, the debate and controversy around boycotts sometimes seems bigger than the movement itself. Why don't they always work?
2: Well, the BDS movement, which is the movement for boycott divestment and sanctions against Israel is a really good example of how contested and complicated boycotts can be. It began with Palestinian organisations wanting to pressure Israel. Now the so-called BDS campaign is gaining momentum. Israeli officials have called it a strategic threat. Could this campaign help the Palestinian cause? Should Israel be worried? The supporters of that movement say that they are looking for the end of Israel's occupation of Gaza and the West Bank and the restoration of the rights of Palestinian people. Uh, But Israel views the movement as straightforwardly anti-Semitic and say that those behind it deny its right to exist. They also say that there is a kind of a collective punishment thing going on here, Uh, that the idea that you would boycott Israeli companies or Israeli academics because of the actions of the Israeli government has disturbing overtones. On the other side of that is the sense that um, if you look at companies like SodaStream, which had a faction in legal West Bank settlement, or Caterpillar, which sold the Israeli government the bulldozers, which have been used to demolish Palestinian homes, that there is a very strong moral case for taking action against them.
3: Here in Britain, activists have protested outside factories owned by Caterpillar. They've also targeted stores like this one in Manchester, selling Caterpillar footwear.
2: They would say that they have helped to mobilise opposition to Israel around the world. And they would also say that they have played a key role in communicating to the Palestinian people that they're not alone. But the other big question is whether it actually has an effect. There isn't a very clear argument that there has been a serious economic impact on Israel. Critics would also say that it's really questionable whether that boycott in the end has actually helped Palestinian people or had a meaningful economic impact on Israel.
1: But actually, coming back to the UK and Russia, there doesn't seem to be a rift between what the government's objectives are and what public opinion is. In fact, they both seem pretty aligned. How has that played out here and what impact is it having?
2: Well, I think it's really interesting what you say there because it gets at one of the big things that distinguishes this boycott from previous ones. Normally, boycotts are, as you say, about trying to put pressure on your own government to act. In this case, the government is already acting probably as strongly as anyone imagines it's possible for it to do, unless you're talking about no-fly zones and all of that. So it does seem as if the boycott in, in this case is intended more as an expression of that kind of disgust than as a means of enacting pressure on the government. If you look also at past boycotts, they have tended to be against democracies. It's very hard to see that Vladimir Putin is going to come under pressure from voters as it were, over this. And there is an argument that boycotts in this case also provide a stick to beat the West with.
1: Archie, we heard from Alexei Zimin at the beginning of this episode. Can you explain why you wanted to speak to him?
2: So I first heard about Alexei when a friend of mine happened to be outside of his restaurant, Zima, um, which is in central London and which says prominently outside that it's a Russian restaurant. And she noticed that just above the entrance to the restaurant, there was just the shadow of what looked like it had previously been the letter Z.
0: It's difficult to imagine that uh, one of the letters in English alphabet <laughs> can be a symbol. Could you imagine this uh, a month ago? Just letter. He told me that it had actually
2: taken a couple of weeks before he suddenly realized to his horror that this single z above the door to the restaurant no longer just stood as a kind of an emblem for the restaurant but actually had this appalling association with the Russian invasion of Ukraine because of the way that letter has become a kind of a symbol of the attack and is painted on Russian tanks and is worn as on a t-shirt or or carried on a placard by a Russian supporter of, of the invasion of Ukraine and so he had it taken down
0: Coloured it, and they changed, changed the logotype.
2: But that wasn't enough did, uh, to change. insulate him from the kind of boycotting that has been going on in the UK.
0: We've got some uh, telephone calls, uh, some uh, some stuff in social media.
2: I think it's really important to say Alexei is not somebody who thinks that his suffering is in any way on a scale with anything that's happening in Ukraine. And that was one of the things he told me again and again. But just from an outsider's point of view, it still seems like it's not right. It's quite hard to see Alexei as somebody who deserves to be punished for Vladimir Putin's actions. But that is something that's been happening.
1: And were there other stories like that that you encountered
2: So I did find a bunch of other people who've experienced something similar and it seemed very much like it was happening in one direction. Just about everybody I spoke to said that they had faced something like what Alexi was talking about, um, but they didn't want to talk about it on the record because they didn't want to face more of it. They talked about facing death threats. They talked about seeing their customers dry up. They talked about having people come by and shout Slava, Ukraini" repeatedly over a few days. Some of them have changed the names of their businesses because they don't want the association anymore. And I think it's also worth saying that quite a few of these people aren't actually Russian at all. If you run a shop selling Eastern European goods in the UK, you will quite often put Russian in the title because that's probably the majority of your customer base. But in fact, quite a lot of these people were Latvian or Lithuanian or from other Eastern European countries. They have no connections to Vladimir Putin and, and in no meaningful sense could they be held responsible for what's happening.
1: So boycotts, as per human emotions, are really, really messy. And in your piece, you also reported on the case of a vodka brand that was boycotted, even though it wasn't even Russian. What happened there?
2: So the vodka that you're talking about is called Stoliknaya, or at least it was until very recently, and it's a really interesting example of how complicated some of this stuff can be. Um, Stoliknaya, at the very beginning of the invasion of Ukraine, found itself with some very unwelcome publicity when people running bars and restaurants across the US started to pour it down the drain. They would be photographed or videoed doing that and then post those images on their social media feeds and get a lot of likes.
1: Sorry, we don't serve Russian products here
2: the problem is is that it's not entirely clear that Stoliknaya is Russian in fact it's almost certainly not but it sort of depends how you define it because international supply chains are very complicated things so Stoliknaya was originally Russian um, and it was bought by a Russian oligarch. Mm. He then wound up in pretty bad odor with the Russian government and left the country. Um, he is now in a kind of a long standing war with Vladimir Putin. And these days, Soliknaya is produced in Latvia, um, it's headquartered in Luxembourg. And the only thing that you can see in its supply chain that is Russian is the grain that is used to produce the vodka. All of that pressure really had an impact on Stolichnaya, And uh, I actually spoke to the CEO of the company who said that for a few days there, it looked like the company might go down. They very quickly took action to try to distinguish themselves from Vladimir Putin's regime. And they decided that changing the name of the brand from Stolichnaya to Stoly would play a big part in that.
1: So, this is the thing, Archie. It does feel like what begins as a well intentioned stand by individuals against war starts warping a bit here. I mean, suddenly everything Russian and Russia-related has become a common enemy. Where can a line be drawn?
2: So I asked Damien McKinney, the CEO of Solly, as it is now, about this, and he, unsurprisingly, was quite worried.
3: Here's what I've seen, and I've seen this too many times, is when people are scared and really emotional
2: the adrenaline goes the emotion goes and there's almost a you know it's often referred to particularly in military terms as a red mist there's a kind of anger takes so it's that mob behavior that just you just go berserk he said that it's a kind of fearful reaction that it's something that indicates that you're simply flailing around for something to do that makes you feel better and that that can have unintended consequences but against that it is fair to say that if boycotts are going to be effective they can't be perfectly precise implements. And while I think everybody would agree that abusing somebody who runs a shop with the word Russian in the title, and probably most people would agree that taking action against a vodka brand because it happens to have some slightly Slavic overtones and was once based in Russia are wrong... There are more complicated cases where you can see that there is a meaningful kind of PR cost to Russia about taking this action, but it will also have an impact on ordinary Russian people. And like it or not, that is sort of how boycotts are supposed to work.
1: Coming up, how are the bans and boycotts playing out with the public in Russia?
3: Hello, Guardian
2: columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is helpfully called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday.
1: Leonid Rogozin, you're a Russian journalist now based in Latvia, but you've been following the impact the war has been having on ordinary Russians back in Moscow and elsewhere in the country. Now, as Russia feels the impacts of sanctions and as Western brands pull out of the country... How has life changed for Russian citizens since Putin's invasion began?
3: Well, I would say uh, drastically. In a matter of uh, several days or several weeks, uh, what used to be a very uh, mild uh, uh, authoritarian state uh, by comparison with uh, the authoritarian states of the 20th century, it uh, transformed from that into uh, essentially North Korea on steroids. The uh, disappearance of major Western brands uh, uh, from shops, from every um, part of life. And also the political repression, which is uh, unprecedented and uncomparable to, to what we have uh, seen.
1: And what are you hearing from people back at home in Moscow or St. Petersburg where the sort of disappearance of brands like Zara and McDonald's has been the most obvious?
3: People uh, are yet to digest the, uh, all those changes, I was actually in Russia when the whole thing happened, when uh, Russian troops invaded Ukraine. I saw the, I think, the the first week uh, after it happened, um, Moscow felt uh, quite strange. It was uh, a city of people looking uh, dismayed. I would say uh, lots and lots of Russians, of of opposition-minded Russians, of pro-Western-minded Russians, uh, caught up uh, in crossfire between Putin's regime which is uh, increasingly repressive. Uh, that's on the one hand. And on the other hand, uh, there is uh, uh, unsympathetic West and lots of xenophobia towards, towards Russians uh, outside Russia. Well, I'm,
1: I'm going to come on to that xenophobia in, in a moment, but I wanted to ask about the people who've been left behind, friends and relatives, who've seen Western companies put out of the country, they've seen the ruble fall what are they doing? How how is life for them right now?
3: Initial difficulties which people had uh, were to do with the money, uh, with the fact that they could not uh, exchange, um, uh, exchange rubles into hard currency and, and, uh, and backwards. Um, uh, there, there were major issues with uh, bank cards because uh, uh, MasterCard and Visa disappeared from Russia. Uh, so people needed to, to rapidly switch the Russian uh, card system. And uh, then what happened next is uh, the disappearance, gradual disappearance of uh, Western products from shops. And that also includes uh, food, a lot of panic buying, people buying uh, basic uh, staples uh, like sugar and salt, uh, anticipating some catastrophic events which are yet to happen.
1: We've well, talked about essentials here, but you also, in your piece, you talked about the more frivolous end where people are also doing their Last shops in Uniqlo or Zara. How did that look, and how and or how widespread was that? I should ask.
3: Well, it is very widespread um, in, uh, especially in uh, large cities like uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg, um, and that accounts for about 25 um, percent of the population. Their lifestyle was uh, essentially identical to the lifestyle in uh, major Western cities. Uh, and um, that's that's the paradox of Putin's regime uh, that in cultural terms, in lifestyle terms. Never has Russia been so close uh, to the West in the last 100 years as it was in the last years until this, this war started. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, the brands that you mentioned, Uniqlo or McDonald's or Starbucks, uh, they were part of uh, everyday life uh, for millions and millions of people in Russia. And for most people who are in, in the, uh, under, under their 40s or 30s, uh, they have never seen uh, other type of life. They don't remember the um, uh, Soviet life uh, too too well uh, to even compare. So, uh, yes, it's, it's going to be a, a shock for them.
1: Leonard, we're speaking to you several weeks after the start of the invasion, but in some ways it's still early days of what looks like a very protracted war. What will the longer term economic fallout look like for Russia?
3: The the most uh, severe sanctions uh, are are the ones which lead to inflation. Uh, Millions um, of Russians live below poverty line. And that uh, primarily concerns uh, pensioners, and especially pensioners living in in smaller places, not not in Moscow or St. Petersburg. For those people, I think we we are going to to expect um, um, real, real hardships. I think a lot is going to be decided on the battlefields uh, in Ukraine in the next uh, couple of uh, weeks. If it is going to be a protracted conflict, then, of course, uh, uh, gradually, um, and I hear experts uh, talking about uh, the summer and especially the beginning of autumn, uh, when the Russians will be uh, feeling this uh, drastic change in, in earnest properly and and then uh, we, we could expect uh, discontent, uh, maybe, maybe protests uh, and um, a, a general change of mood in Russia.
1: It seems that sanctions and boycotts have two aims. One is to put pressure on the economy and two, maybe to inspire a sense of shame to signal that the country's government is behaving badly in hopes that Russian citizens will then put pressure on their government or that they'll perhaps find a way to change that government. Now, is there any realistic hope that Putin would be challenged in this way or is this just a notional Western fantasy?
3: Well, I'm, I'm not very hopeful. For once, this hinges on, uh, on the belief that um, Russians... Um, Will behave in the same way as uh, other Eastern Europeans, um, especially Ukrainians or, or Belarusians. The, the difference uh, between Russians and and uh, Belarusians or other East Europeans uh, is that they don't have this uh, beacon of uh, uh, European and Euroatlantic integration in front of them. They find themselves in a uh, cultural and political vacuum. Uh, they can topple Putin, but what's what's uh, what's after that? They're not going to be embraced and invited into European Union. They're not going to to be invited into NATO. Um, What um, the West is uh, doing to Russia uh, and has been doing to Russia since uh, 1990s is essentially containment.
1: Leonid, is there a risk that as people in Russia see Western brands leaving, they see the economy crumbling, that they begin to feel even more alienated and blame the West for abandoning them?
3: Well, that's that's very much a possibility. There is an issue uh, of people who are introducing those sanctions, who are uh, arguing for those sanctions. There is an issue with them uh, not really understanding the uh, psychological background uh, in in Russian society, um, and um, it is a very confused, uh, traumatized society. People begin to adore Putin just because uh, just because this is the only safe place they have. They, they don't have a safer place. And the West is basically not offering them a safer place.
1: Leonid, thank you so much. My thanks also to Archie Bland. You can read his piece, Should We Ditch the Vodka?, what we can learn from the turbulent history of boycotts at theguardian.com Regular listeners will remember Archie as a former member of the TIFF team He is now the editor of the Guardian's new daily newsletter Do look out for that It's launching later this month That's it for today This episode was produced by Lucy Hoff and Eva Krishniak Sound design is by Axel cacutier The executive producers are Maithli Rao and Phil Maynard We'll be back tomorrow.
0: This is The Guardian.